I invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Luke 5, verses 12 through 16. Luke 5, verses 12 through 16. As you recall, last week, Jesus called his first disciples, and there was a, there was specific, a specific focus upon Peter. And during this, this narrative, we saw Peter himself recognize his utter sinfulness as Jesus revealed his identity to him. Now in this passage and the next two pass and the passage afterwards and, and the passage in two weeks, Jesus will instruct us on what his true mission is, that he is the great physician who's come not just to heal lepers or uh, the uh, people who, who lived in the first century's physical bodies, but he has come to heal our souls. He's come to save his people from their sins. So please turn your attention now to Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write his word upon our hearts this evening. Well, illness and disease are commonplace in a fallen world. In fact, this past year, we have encountered a virus that has spread across uh, this entire globe. This, of course, isn't the first time something like this has happened. Undoubtedly, it won't be the last time something like this will happen. Disease, illness, they're commonplace for fallen people in a fallen world. And this passage does indeed speak about a disease as we encounter this, this man with scale disease or, or leprosy. But this passage speaks about something, a disease much, much greater than, than scale disease, leprosy, or any other physical disease. This passage is speaking about a disease of the heart, a soul sickness, as it were. You may recall that the, the prayer of confession that we recite after the reading of God's law each uh, Lord's Day has a phrase in that prayer that says, where we thought we were well, we are sick in soul. Where we thought we were well, we are sick in soul. You have a soul sickness. And this disease, this sickness of the heart, 
has a 100% transmission rate. From our first parents, Adam and Eve, who introduced this sin into the world, every single person who has been born, who has descended from them, has this disease. You may be thinking, well, that that might very well be true, but I don't see that in this passage. What I see in this passage is Jesus cleansing a man with leprosy. And no doubt, that's what this passage is about. But my argument is that this passage is teaching and speaking about something much, much greater. It's speaking about our hearts. In fact, it's a living illustration of our spiritual lives. According to this view, the main point, the main idea I want us to focus our hearts and minds on this evening is that Jesus cleanses or or heals our sick and diseased hearts. Jesus cleanses, he heals our sick and diseased hearts. I'd like to ask and answer three questions this evening to to guide our our time in this passage. First, we're going to consider, why do we need Jesus' cleansing in the first place? And then we'll consider, what is the nature of Jesus' cleansing? And then lastly, how should we respond to Jesus' cleansing? So first, why do we need Jesus' cleansing? Well, this passage, we are right away introduced uh, to a man with with leprosy. And the word that Luke uses in the original language to uh, describe this man and the disease that this man has is actually referring to what was known at that time and in the Old Testament as scale disease. Scale disease was a broad category that encompassed many different skin uh, conditions and diseases, one of which could be Hansen's disease, which is what modern medicine now refers to as leprosy. But this man had scale disease. He had sores and scabs all over his body. It would have been uh, unpleasant and, and for many, many reasons. And Leviticus 13 through 14 give us some background and how this man would have been viewed in that context as God's people were still under the Old Covenant. Uh, Leviticus 13 and 14 gives Israel instructions in how to deal with people who have scale disease. So I I just want to spend a few moments giving some background, some Old Testament background to how an individual with scale disease in the first century would have been viewed and and the context that is behind this, this narrative. The situation where Jesus encounters this man with, with scale disease. It's important to know that there was two main categories when you consider the ritual system of the Old Testament. You had, on the one hand, that which was holy and unholy, and this was the standard for the people of God. Holy and unholy. But on the other hand, you had that which was clean and unclean. And this is the state, the state of, of the people of God. And we read in the Old Testament that the temple was holy, the land was holy, God himself was holy. And this was to be the standard, the standard to which the people of God were called to. On the other hand, you had the state of 
of whether you were clean or unclean. And there were numerous things that could make you unclean. Many of these things were inevitable and not in themselves sinful. For example, if you had a baby, if you had sex, if you had bodily discharges, if you had scale disease, if you encountered a dead corpse, all these things would make you ritually unclean. That is, you were not worthy, not able, to approach that which was holy, the standard. And so there was ritual purifications that the people would have to undergo in order to be able to approach the temple to offer uh, sacrifices and dwell with the people of God. So you had the standard and you had the state. One way to think of this is, um, you know, my wife and I have different standards of cleanliness when we clean our apartment. When my wife cleans our apartment, it's a deep clean. When I clean our apartment, I just get the job done in a time-efficient manner, and I'm not getting under every nook and cranny. Right? That's a standard. We have a difference in standard. But the state of our apartment would be the actual cleanliness of the countertops, of the toilet, of the floor. And the state is always relative to our standard. So the people's state of being clean or unclean was always relative to the standard of that which was holy. And this whole paradigm would have caused the people of God to always be thinking about God's holy presence and whether their state is worthy to be in that presence. So we see that this man, this man who had scale disease, uh, no doubt would he have been uh, in pain, as this was not a pleasant disease, but he would have been isolated. Because he was unclean, he was separated from that which was holy. So people with scale disease, they were put outside the camp in their own colony, as it were. They were separated from God's house, that is the temple. They couldn't come near the temple and, and make any, any offerings. And they were separated from the people of God. They couldn't be among the holy people of God. They were separated from God's house and from God's people. They were isolated. They would have had a social stigma upon them. In fact, there was a common notion in the Old Testament that to have scale disease was interpreted as judgment from God. As one commentator says, this would have been uh, sort of like a living death not only had a physical pain to it, but you also had this, this isolation, this emotional, uh, spiritual side to it as well. This is the context, then, of this passage. As this man who has this scale disease, who's experiencing this sort of isolation, he's been separated from that which is holy, from God's, God's house and God's people, and he's coming to Jesus to cleanse him, to heal him. Now, as I mentioned, my argument is that this passage is a living illustration of our spiritual lives. So what does this man and his condition of scale disease have to teach us about ourselves? Well, how does the Bible describe the fallen, sinful human heart? One image that Scripture uses is that of a disease or that of a sickness. Listen to Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The prophet says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Desperately sick. 
In Psalm 51, David is confessing his sins before God, and particularly he's confessing his sin and the sins that surrounded his adultery with Bathsheba. And listen to the language that he uses as he confesses his sins. He says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God. It's as if David thinks of his heart as having a sort of scale disease, a a sickness that needs to be ritually purified, cleaned. The human heart is sick. Where we thought we were well, we are sick in soul. As I already mentioned, this leper, because he was ritually unclean, would have been separated from God's people and from God's house. That fact, that reality, is a great illustration of the effects of our diseased hearts. Our diseased hearts, our sin, does that very same thing. It it separates us. It creates this isolation from God and from his people. At the most fundamental level, our sin, our diseased hearts, separates us completely from God. It creates this chasm between mankind and God. We, We read about that in Genesis 3 when our first parents sin. And God comes in judgment, and Adam and Eve are are terrified. They're ashamed. They're banned, ultimately, from God's holy temple in the garden. But even for those of us who are trusting in Christ, our sin, our diseased hearts can't break our relationship with God. We are secure in Christ. But our sin can at times hinder our relationship with God. And our... experience of of his presence. Our diseased hearts also has a horizontal dimension. Our diseased hearts have have a history of leaving a wake of broken relationships in its trail. I don't have to give much examples or, or illustrations to describe how our diseased hearts and our sins cause horizontal friction. We all can think of that in our own personal lives. And the conflict we've endured, the broken relationships that ensued because of other people's sins, or even our own sin, there's a vertical dimension, there's a horizontal dimension. Our diseased hearts create this isolation in a way that's that's very analogous to what someone richly unclean would have endured as they were put outside the camp, separated from God's people and God's house. Love and the Lord, it's very important that we recognize that the problem, the problem rests within ourselves. The problem is with our diseased and sick hearts. It's so easy for us to play the so-called blame game. When we are struggling to react properly to a particular situation or even to a particular person, it's so easy for us to say, well, if my circumstances would just change, then I wouldn't be acting this way. If that person would just get their act together, I wouldn't have a problem. Brothers and sisters, our circumstances function like a mirror, revealing to us 
the true state of our hearts. Or put it another way, our circumstances are just the platform for us to express what's really going on in our diseased and sick hearts. Or even to put it another way, using the idiom of this passage, our circumstances diagnose our hearts. So what do your circumstances and what diagnosis do your circumstances give of your heart this evening? Brothers and sisters, we all are those who have scale disease of the heart. The problem lies within us. Another, another temptation for us as uh, conservative Christians and the broader conservative Christian church is it's easy for us to decry the immorality of culture, to decry the state of the modern ethical discourse, all the while looking past the sins of our own hearts and lives. It was easy for us to decry Obergefell and, and Hodges and homosexual marriage, all the while the marriages within our own churches are failing. It's easy for us to decry the sexual ethics of our day, all the while there's individuals within our own churches who are addicted to pornography. Or we can decry the political divisiveness that is in our world, our country at large, all the while we never go across the street and have a conversation with an unbeliever. The problem is within ourselves. The problem is in our own hearts. So can you see yourselves in this leper? I want, to see, I want you to see then the faith of this leper. In verse 12 he says, And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. This leper recognized that Jesus had the power to heal him. Jesus had the power to heal. But he says, if you will, if you wish it. This is exactly how Jesus himself will teach his disciples how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. If you will it, make me clean. And this is the proper response we need to have to our, the sickness of our hearts. This is sort of the cycle that we should have. We should recognize the problem lies within. Once we look within, we need to immediately look outside of us and recognize that Christ has the power to heal us, to cleanse us, to change us. And so we need to look to Christ by faith. We look within and then we look without. So to sum up this point, why do we need Jesus' cleansing? Well, it's because we have a disease, not just a disease of the skin, a disease of the heart. Our hearts are, are like what the skin of this man would have been like. We, we're sinful. Even after we trust in Christ, we still have a sinful nature. This leads us then to consider the nature of Jesus' cleansing, the nature of Jesus' cleansing. 
Look in, with me in your Bibles at verse 13. We see that uh, Jesus' response to this was, uh, was this. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will. That is, I, I, I do will this. Be clean. And immediately, leprosy left him. Jesus takes away the condition that was bringing this isolation. This isolation uh, from, from God's house. This isolation from God's people. Don't miss the detail of Jesus heal, uh, touching this man. We've already seen that Jesus has great power by speaking. He's done many marvelous things already up to this point in Luke chapter 5. He could have just spoke, be clean, and this man would have been cleaned. But he touches this man. This is astonishing. Because Jesus touched this man, he was made ritually unclean. Now, of course, this didn't mean that Jesus sinned. Far from it. You can... um, There's many things that that were not sinful that would make you unclean. But Jesus touched this man and became ritually unclean. Leviticus 14 tells us that he he only would have been unclean until the evening, but he still was made unclean. This is an astonishing detail not to pass over. As I mentioned, this is a living illustration this passage, a living illustration of our spiritual lives. So what does this, this cleansing, this healing of Christ have to, have, have to say to us? Well, again, Jesus touches this man, and as a result, he becomes ritually unclean so that this man might experience cleansing, healing. Does that remind you of anything that Jesus will do later on in his ministry? Listen to the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, explaining the significance of what Christ did on the cross. He says, For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Christ took our sin on the cross and thereby imputed, credited, reckoned to us his perfect life of righteousness. Or, to, use, to paraphrase this verse using the, the language and imagery of this passage, God made Christ to be unclean so that we who were unclean might experience the cleansing of God. It's a great picture of the cross. Double imputation what Christ does for all of his people. In fact, think of it this way. To enter God's holy presence, to enter heaven, he requires a perfect clean bill of health. Not just presently, but throughout your entire life. You can't have any record of sickness, of disease, of complications, of abnormalities. Perfect bill of health. The problem is that... (laughs) We not only don't have that, we are diseased. We have a terminal disease. What Christ does is he takes our sick hearts. That is, he he pays the punishment for our sin. But then he also gives to us his perfect bill of health so that we can approach God on judgment day and say, 
here's my health. And we pass through judgments. That's the gospel. And we need both of those. We not only need our, our disease to be taken away, we also need that perfect bill of health given and credited to us. But there's also great significance in the fact that Jesus speaks. They said there's, there's obviously great significance in the fact that he touches this man, but Jesus also speaks. Be clean. We already saw in, Luke, in Luke's gospel that his word has the power over demons, over other illnesses, and now over scale disease. And this fits a, a broader theme and paradigm that we see throughout Scripture. God is a God who works through the medium of his word. God, God created how? Through the spoken word. God revealed himself to his people through the spoken word. And how do we come to faith? Through the word. Paul says in Romans 10, how, how will people believe? through hearing, and hearing through the word of God. This is why the Reformed tradition plays such a high emphasis on the word of God, the preaching of the word of God. Because this reflects what we see throughout Scripture. God is a God who accomplishes his purposes through the word. In fact, if you go back, if you, would, if you look at uh, churches in, in Europe that were built um, or are surviving since the, the time of the Reformation, you would see a great contrast between Roman Catholic churches and churches of the Reformation. Roman Catholic churches were meant, uh, these, these great cathedrals were meant so that when you walk in the doors, your eyes immediately are drawn to the altar. That's central, right? The altar, the mass. For Reformation churches, we still have a, a table, but what's central now is the pulpit. Your eyes are immediately drawn to the pulpit, which signifies the word of God, which is how God accomplishes his purposes. So what is the nature of Jesus' healing? Well, he takes our sick hearts, our diseased hearts, and gives to us clean and perfect hearts. Well, lastly, uh, we'll consider uh, briefly how we should respond to this cleansing of Jesus. You'll see that Jesus immediately uh, tells this man to go to the priests and undergo this ritual, ritual cleansing as prescribed by the law of Moses. So for people who had scale disease and were healed, they would still have to go to the priest and, and go through the, this ritual cleansing to be fully and finally restored back to, uh, to that which is holy, to God's people, and be able to uh, even come near to God's uh, holy presence. So Jesus is not an antinomian, right? He's not against the law. He's wanting this man to abide by the law of Moses, which is still, in the, which is still on the books. The ritual and sacrificial laws are still in place. As, this is still the old covenant. Jesus was born under the law, and he wants this man to respond by obeying the law. As we consider what this has to say to our spiritual lives, I think there's a great analogy with how we, after we experience this cleansing, this healing of God, are called to respond with obedience. We're called to obey God's law out of gratitude. 
And no doubt we, we don't go to a temple, we don't see a priest, we don't go through any ritual cleansing. Rather, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. We don't offer literal animal sacrifices, we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what Paul tells us in, in Romans 12. So you'll see that a structure of, the structure of this passage is like our catechism. Guilt, we have diseased hearts. Grace, Jesus cleanses. In gratitude, we are to respond by obeying God's law. And this is this paradigm we see throughout Scripture. This is one of the reasons why the authors of our catechism use this to, to structure this document that we, that we confess and uh, profess to believe. And the primary motivation is, is the cleansing, the healing of Jesus. So when we go back to that, we have wind in our sails. We are filled with gratitude to obey God's law. And in verse 16, this, this passage ends with that note about Jesus withdrawing to, to desolate places to pray. You know, I've mentioned this before. When you read the Gospels, you first need to read them with a lens to seeing Christ as Savior. Christ is this unique God-man, the second Adam who's come to do what no one else could do, to save his people from their sins. It's only then that we can see gospel passages as Christ's example. We can see Christ as an example worthy of our imitation. And we all, I think, if we were honest with ourselves, would realize that our prayer lives are not what they ought to be. We all recognize that we need to pray more. When we feel that guilt, we first need to recognize that the basis of our standing with God rests in the fact that Jesus' prayer life is perfect. He's our great high priest, seated at the right hand of God, who is continuing day and night to intercede for his people. And Jesus' prayers are always answered. That's the good news. It's only then that we can see this text as a as a, a text of imitation, that we are called to pray. Paul himself said we are to pray without ceasing. And so that's another way in which we respond to Jesus' cleansing. Uh, we see that throughout the New Testament, that we are, called, we are called to pray. And prayer, I think, is a great act of humility. It's basically a recognition that we're not God, we're not sovereign. It's a declaration that we are mere creatures who are called to bow the knee to the Creator. So how should we respond to Jesus' cleansing? We respond by obeying God's law out of gratitude. Well, beloved in the Lord, let us never, give, let us never tire of giving thanks that Christ is one who cleanses sick and diseased hearts. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who entered this world in human history for us and for our salvation. Uh, we thank you that as we learned about in this passage, as he cleansed a leper, we know that we have a, a much, much greater problem than any mere physical ailment or disease. We have a problem of, of the heart, a problem of, of, of the soul that has, that has the power to condemn us eternally. We thank you that by faith we can experience the cleansing and healing work 
of Christ, which he accomplished on our behalf. May you never allow us to forget this, this great and good news, which puts winds in our sails as we seek to live a life of gratitude in this present evil age. We ask all these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.